Hey, how about one more hand for our high school students? Let them hear you out in the hall. What an awesome group. And if, if 9.30 is your service, I want you to know at 11 o'clock, uh, all of our high schoolers join us. And they sit in this section right in here. It's a growing number of high schoolers that worship with us during our 11 o'clock service. It's just so exciting to see what God is doing uh, in them and through them. And I don't know, he may have already jetted out that way, but Matt Limbrick, our high school minister, uh, is doing a fantastic job. I am so grateful for him. So, uh, man, we we have, can have a lot of confidence in both our middle school ministries and our high school ministries. They are being led by godly men, godly leaders pouring into these students. And we believe that the gospel is all-inclusive, meaning it is just as relevant for the high schoolers that were up here on stage. And, and to show how relevant the gospel is to all people, uh, we wanted to sing the song Ain't Nobody to make our Kentucky friends feel like the gospel is for them them too. That's a cheap shot. Man, I tell you that, it's two weeks in a row. I've taken a cheap shot at Purdue and Kentucky. I am not making any friends here with them. But uh, every year around uh, the end of summer, thousands of people gather in the Black Rock Desert of Nevada for a festival called Burning Man. And, and the event uh, is, is quite a spectacle, but it is just really focused on community and self-expression and art. And every year it ends with the symbolic burning of a large wooden effigy called the man. And during the week-long festival, uh, people team up to create incredible works of art. Everything from sculptures to buildings, uh, performances, even decorating cars. In 2015, a Ukrainian artist named Alexander Milov uh, created this sculpture called Love. And the piece is 58 feet long, 18 feet wide, and 24 feet tall. And it's made of metal and mesh and all sorts of materials, lights, it lights up at night. But as impressive as the structure is, it's the message behind it that is so stinking beautiful. Milov says that it represents two people who are at odds with one another. Their backs are turned, but they both have this inner desire to connect with each other. There's a space between them. Even though they're, they're physically close, there's this space between them emotionally, but there's something inside of both of them that longs to close the gap. And I think that there's something inside of each one of us that can resonate with that. And we want those gaps in our relationships to be closed. We, we have this longing for deep and meaningful and rich relationships and connections with others. And yet, at the same time, I think that there is something that, that actively is working against the very thing that we desire so much. The very thing that it takes to make these connections happen. We're in week two of our series called The Space Between Us. And the focus of this series is how we can close those gaps that happen in our relationships. Gaps that are caused by conflict and misunderstanding, mistakes. 
And we saw last week that if there is a gap in our relationship caused by one of those things, reconciliation requires certain ingredients that you hold and that I hold. True reconciliation of a relationship when things are made right, maybe not made what they were, but made right, requires confession and repentance, and it requires forgiveness. And it takes both people who hold their ingredients to add it to make reconciliation. And I think the reason why so many of us long for this connection, but we experience separation, is because sometimes, if we're honest, it is just really hard to add our ingredient. It can be really hard to forgive. It can be really hard to let go of an offense. But it can also be really hard to admit when we were wrong. It can be hard to own our mistakes and ask for forgiveness, but it's so important if we desire reconciliation, which is why today we are talking about confession. And there's space between us. Maybe one of the very first steps that we need to take is to look in the mirror and see what maybe we have done to cause that And we may look in the mirror and say, no, this is the other person. But we also may look in the mirror and say, no, this is squarely on me. And in that moment, you have a choice to make. What are you going to do? You can ignore it. You can run from it. You can hope that the other person will forget about it. But we all know those aren't very effective. Or we can confess. We can deal with it. And we know that there's so much freedom and good and confession, don't we? It's why we teach it to our kids. It's why we celebrate it when we see others kind of own up to their mistakes. As a society, we are actually very quick to forgive when someone confesses what they've done. But there are a couple of enemies that keep us from doing the very thing that we know we ought to do. We know that it's good, and we know that it's good for our relationships, but I think the reason why we have such a hard time confessing when we were wrong comes down to two greatest enemies in our our faith and in our lives, in our relationships. It comes down to pride and fear. Our pride and our fear keep us from confessing when we were wrong. We don't want to admit that we were wrong. We don't want to swallow our pride and accept responsibility. Our pride makes us think that if someone is offended by something I did, that is their problem, not mine. Pride makes us get defensive. Pride makes us justify our actions. It makes us think only about ourselves. And whenever we're only thinking about ourselves, again, like we looked at last week, it is going to drive a wedge into any relationship, especially if that relationship has been damaged by the hurt that we've caused. And closely related to pride is fear. It's the other side of the same coin. And it's not fear of what the other person will think of us if they know what we did. In fact, most of the times they do know what we did. They're wondering if you know what you did. And part of the way that we hide 
is we ignore or we justify it and we do it because I think that there is this desire that is in all of us to be fully known and fully loved. And we are afraid that that if they know the real us, if we are fully known, we are afraid that we will not be fully loved. And so we hide from the hurt that we've caused others and sometimes we hide the hurt. If you walk into Alan Phillips' office, our care minister, you'll see a sign that I just love. It says, nothing you confess will make me love you less. Nothing you confess will make me love you less. He says that it's from a country song, uh, but uh, he doesn't know which one, and I've only ever heard him say it, uh, and so I'm giving the credit to Alan. (laughs) And I'm also giving the credit because, man, he embodies that so well. But I think this phrase touches on a fear that we have, doesn't it? We're afraid that if we confess and we own up to something, that people are going to love us less. But I'll tell you what I found in my life through experience, what I found in the lives of others as I've counseled them, is actually the exact opposite. There may be pain in the confession. There may be hurt that is caused. There may be some reconciliation that has to take place afterwards. It's not easy. But when someone is willing to confess, it is typically a catalyst towards reconciliation, not a deterrent from it. And confession doesn't just help pave the way for the person that we hurt to forgive us. Confession paves the way for us to be able to forgive ourselves. If if we live in denial of what we have done, we're never going to be able to deal with it in our own lives and come to a place where we forgive ourselves as well. Nona Jones says that while forgiveness is necessary to release our offender from our future, and we're going to talk more about that next week, grace is necessary to release ourselves from our past. And once we humble ourselves and admit our mistakes and confess our sin, then we are able to start forgiving ourselves for what we have done, which helps us then seek reconciliation with those that we've hurt. And I think all of this is captured so well in our text today. If you have a Bible or a Bible app, turn with me to Psalm 51. Psalm 51, and we'll have the words up on the screen as, as well, but I invite you and turn, turn into those, those Bibles with us together. When you read through the Psalms, uh, oftentimes what you may notice is that underneath the chapter, there's, there's a little subtitle. It's usually in a smaller font, maybe italicized, and that, and that subtitle uh, tells us who the psalm was written for, tells us who the psalm was written by. Uh, oftentimes, you know, the psalms are, are the, the first hymn book, the first music book. And so it'll say uh, maybe even the beat that the, that the psalm is sung to. But a lot of times you'll find context in the psalm. You'll be able to see what is going on that caused the author to write this particular psalm. And in Psalm 51, you can see it if you have your Bibles open, the subtitle says this, for the director of music, a psalm of David, and then we get the context. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. If you know the account of 2 Samuel 11 and and 12, uh, you know that David did just a little bit more than commit adultery with Bathsheba. If you don't know the account, long story short, King David uh, was out walking on his palace rooftop one night while 
while his men were off to war, David was at home. And as he was walking around, he looked down at another rooftop and he noticed a young lady bathing. And he inquired about her. And he found out that this is the wife of one of his mighty men, one of the people that have given literally their life to serve and protect him, who was off at battle. And David said, bring her to me. And so Bathsheba came. David abuses his power, invites her, and Bathsheba ends up pregnant. And in pride or fear or maybe both, David panics and he calls Uriah's husband, or Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, to come off of the battlefield, hoping that he'll come home and spend the evening with his wife and everything will just be assumed it's Uriah's baby and he's covered his tracks. But, but Uriah the warrior has more integrity than David the king and he says, how can I do such a thing when my brothers in arms are off fighting in a battle? And so he doesn't sleep in his own home that night. And David gets a little panicked, and so he, he tries to, to do a little bit more to encourage him to go and sleep with his wife. And again, Uriah refuses. And so eventually, King David sends Uriah back onto the battlefield with this sealed note that is his death warrant, puts him on the front lines of the battle. Uriah is killed, and Bathsheba moves in with King David. And after all of this took place, God sends the prophet Nathan to call David out for his sin. And David is broken before God, but more importantly, he pleads for his forgiveness. He confesses his sin. And Psalm 51 is this psalm that pulls back the curtain on David's prayer after this moment. Look at it with me, starting in verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And David humbles himself and pleads for mercy based on God's character, not his own. He, he doesn't say, God, forgive me because overall I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, remember like I, you called me a man after your own heart. And so like, can we just kind of ignore this one just a little bit? No, he, he pleads for his forgiveness and he bases that appeal on God's character who promises to forgive, not because he thinks that he deserves it. He goes on in verse 3 and he says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. David owns up to his sin. He doesn't try to minimize it or code it. He doesn't hide it and he does not hide from it. He exposes his sin by bringing it out of darkness and into the light. And we don't see it clearly in our English translations, but in the Hebrew, original Hebrew, there is this emphasis on the word I. David is like big, bold, capitalized, highlighted, saying I, I know that it is my sin. He is taking personal responsibility 
David is not praying this prayer of, God, I'm sorry you were offended by what I did. (laughs) That's not an apology. He owns his sin, takes responsibility for it. And I find it interesting that in verse four, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. And I read that, and maybe you do too, and I think, well, um, Bathsheba would probably have something to say about that. (laughs) Uriah would certainly have something to say about that, if he could, but you killed him. And so clearly, your sin was not just against God, but it left a wake of destruction, as sin usually does, in your path. But what David is, knows, and I think what this psalm is teaching us, is that anytime we sin against one another, first and foremost, it is a sin against God. God established the ways for us to have healthy, good, meaningful relationships. And when we break that with someone else, we are first and foremost breaking how God told us to live, how God told us to act. And David knows that before he can make anything right horizontally, Man, it starts with being made right vertically with the Father. And so he humbles himself. He owns up to his sin. And then David pleads for God's forgiveness in verse nine, 7. He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sin and blot out my iniquity. Hyssop was used by priests in the cleansing ritual. If you were, if you were cleansed by hyssop, you were considered pure and, and holy. And David knows that God's forgiveness does the same thing. That his forgiveness makes us clean, that it blots out the stain of our sin and it makes us whiter than snow. And so David pleads for the forgiveness that he needs and then he pleads for restoration in verse 10. He says, create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David cries out for restoration and renewal. He's longing to be reconciled with God, that the Father will close the gap that his sin has created so that they can be in right relationship again. And by grace, that is exactly what God does for David, and it is exactly what God does for us because of Jesus. And David goes on and he ends the psalm with these words of praise, talking about how he will celebrate God in the temple and before people, that he will worship God because that joy of his salvation was restored. He was renewed and he was forgiven. And here's what I found in my life. When I know that I am forgiven and I am loved by the Father, And it gives me the courage to come out of hiding and expose my sin to the light. When I know that I am loved by the Heavenly Father, it gives me confidence to say to the person that I've hurt, I was wrong. What I did was wrong. Because my sense of self-worth and identity and value is not based on getting it right all the time. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes find that I hold myself to a level of expectation that's a lot higher than other people do. 
I have to remember that my worth and my value and my identity, it's not in what other people think of me. It's in a father who knows me fully and who loves me more than I could ever imagine. Your worth, your value, your identity is in a father who loves you fully even though he knows every part about you. And that love and that acceptance and that grace that I receive from him gives me the confidence to not just be honest with myself, but to then be honest with others about the way that I've hurt them. I don't have to hide it. And I don't have to hide from it. Fred Luter, who was the first black president of the Southern Baptist Convention, he put it like this. He says, once you have been reconciled to God, you have no problem being reconciled to others. Once you've humbled yourself before the ultimate judge and experienced the forgiveness of his grace and his mercy and his love, you have no problem pursuing reconciliation with others, doing your part. And sometimes that part is confessing how your actions have created space between you and then seeking to close the gap that it created. And I think that not only does Psalm 51 give us this, this beautiful understanding of God's grace for us when we sin and we come before him and we claim his mercy and his grace. It not only does it show us and give us hope that the gap in our vertical relationship can be closed ultimately because of Christ. I think that Psalm 51 gives us a really good model for how we can close the horizontal gaps that our sin creates. The, the, the breaks in the space that that sometimes our own actions can cause and how confession and repentance play into that. First, confession starts with humility. We saw that in in David. He humbled himself. Humility before God, but then also humility before the person that you hurt. If you know that your actions cause pain, don't ignore it. Don't get defensive. Don't justify it. Humble yourself, swallow your pride, and move towards that person, even if it feels scary. Second, confession means owning the pain that your actions caused. Don't don't just say, I'm sorry. Say what you're sorry for. Own it. Name it. Accept responsibility for your actions. But listen, Owning it does not mean that you have to carry it. I think that that's why when we follow the example of David in Psalm 51, it makes all the difference. David dealt with his sin with the Father and he went knowing that he was forgiven. When we take our sin to the Father knowing that we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus, then we can own our sin, but we don't have to continue to let it define who we are. We can show remorse and contrition, but we can also release it to the Lord who paid the price for it through Jesus. What I found is that when you go to God first, you'll know that your past does not define you. Grace does. Your past does not define you. It's a part of you. It does not have to define you because the grace of God is what defines you. And that helps you be honest about your past and how Your actions may have hurt others and caused a gap in your relationship with them. Third, seek forgiveness. 
Don't just say, I'm sorry. Don't just say what you're sorry for. Man, take that added hard step of asking for forgiveness. Fourth, pursue reconciliation. Pursue reconciliation. Don't assume that things will just go back to the way that they were. Honestly, they might not. They might not. The person that you hurt may, for their own heart, have had to put some boundaries up. But you pursue reconciliation. Trust takes time, and rebuilding trust sometimes takes even longer. Rejoice that God's forgiveness is instant and it is final, but remember that though Jesus says be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, and he's talking about this, man, we don't, we don't always move as quickly as the Lord does. It takes time. And so prove over time a commitment to closing the space between you. And then finally, honor the person by honoring their decision. David honored and celebrated God for his forgiveness. And when you confess, the other person may choose to forgive you. If so, receive that gift because I'm telling you, that is exactly what it is. If you have ever had to forgive someone, you know how hard it is. You know how costly it can be to you. And you know how much of a gift it is that you are giving to that person. If they forgive you, Honor that as the gift that it is. You owed them something, but they canceled the debt. And so express your gratitude. Don't take it for granted. But also, we have to be willing to honor the person even if they are not ready to forgive yet. You cannot force someone to forgive you. You cannot coerce somebody to forgive you. You can only do your part. You can only add your ingredient and hope that one day your confession will pave the road for their forgiveness and reconciliation. And there's so much that we could say about this. But as we close out today, I wonder if there is a next step that you need to take to pave the way for reconciliation. Is there someone that you have sinned against? Is there a hurt that you have caused, a gap that your actions created in a relationship? And maybe today's the day that you make that phone call. You make that phone call that you have been dreading to make, that you've justified in your mind all the reasons why you can't do it. And make that phone call. Send that text. Maybe there's a letter that you need to write And you may think, ah, it's been so long ago. But I guarantee you, that person still thinks about it every now and then. Maybe more than what you think about it. And it is never too late to do the right thing. And maybe for you today, your next step is to humble yourself before God. To confess your sin to him and your need for salvation, to to close that gap in the vertical relationship that God has already made a way for it to be closed through Jesus. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He took the step to reconcile our relationship with him. And maybe today is the day that you take your step and find his forgiveness and his grace and a father whose arms are open wide for you. 
I'm going to pray and then we're going to have a chance to respond this morning. Father, when it comes to this topic, it's hard. Looking in the mirror usually is hard. Yet I find that so often in my attitude and my actions, I, I resemble Adam and Eve. In their sin, they hid. They hid from you. They hid from each other. They hid from themselves. They blamed each other. God, they even blamed you for their sin. So much brokenness. And it's so easy for me to look at that and, and say, ah, how could they? And yet, Lord, so often I do the very same thing. God, thank you that in your grace, just as you did for them, you are calling us out of hiding, Father. You are drawing us to yourself. You have given us grace to be forgiven. And Lord, when we experience that forgiveness and that reconciliation with you, then Lord, it helps close the gap that our sin has created with others too. Thank you for your love and for the freedom that we can find in it. Thank you that in Christ there is now no condemnation. And Father, give us the courage. Give us the courage out of that grace and out of that forgiveness to go and to seek reconciliation with those that we've hurt by being honest about what we've done, owning it, seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. And Lord, I know that, that even today, if someone puts this into practice, this thing that maybe has haunted them or haunted the person that they hurt for so long, Lord, forgiveness, it's not instant. <laughs> Reconciliation isn't. But it paves that way for it to happen, Lord. So God, help us in the moment and even, even years later, if it takes it, to do the right thing and to see you move and bring healing. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can watch all of our video content, both current and past, on our YouTube channel? Visit youtube.com slash Sherwood Oaks to watch messages, series, and complete worship services.